Do you dream of having time and money freedom? Are you looking for ways to enjoy business and life harmony or just to improve your business and yourself? Welcome to Reclaim Your Freedom with your host, Shirley Dalton. In this program, you'll learn from experts in business, leadership, personal development, and mindset to help you create your ideal business lifestyle, whatever that means for you. And now, here's your host, Shirley Dalton. Today, I'm really excited to be in the home and private residence of Dr. Arthur Sierra McCauley. Welcome. Thank you very much, Shirley. Arthur, we're, we're on location in Massachusetts in the USA. You're a clinical psychologist. Um, previously, you've worked in Harvard and you've worked in uh, hospitals. These days, though, you tend to spend most of your time writing and seeing your private clients. You work with executives and uh, high achievers. You've written books around the performance addiction, so we, we want to get into that a little bit later on. And, and also uh, helping people to overcome stress and that's your new book which is called The Stress Solution, How to Use Empathy and Cognitive Behaviour Therapy to Reduce Anxiety and Develop Resilience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I got it right. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot to remember, Shirley. It is a lot. <laughs> yeah. And we were talking just before we started the interview about that performance anxiety when we want yes. to get something right, we want to yes. get it right and then of course we, we muff it yes. when yes. it... Uh, when that happens. So what's the psychology behind that before we get into the rest of it? Well, once, once, we get in, once we try to be perfect, we create too much pressure. We create stress. When we create stress, we release the stress hormone cortisol, mm-hmm. which has many negative effects. So it takes our empathic range from out here and it makes it, it come in here and we have very narrow thinking. And then as if we keep saying, if we keep kind of observing ourselves and saying something negative our, to ourselves while we're talking, like I'm really muffing this up, then we give ourselves another shot of cortisol and our thinking becomes a little bit more narrow and then we're off to the races. And I think what you did is you kind of caught yourself and you realized, you know, you've done this a thousand times and there's some memory in your brain and the hard drive there that this is going to be okay. And so instead of giving yourself the second shot of cortisol, you limit it and you try to calm yourself and it came across perfectly. Okay. Good. (laughs) (laughs) You get an A for the introduction. Oh, very good. (laughs) So we won't cut that. We won't cut that. Yeah, okay. So so tell us um, about your book, how it came about, and and let's have a chat because I'm really interested to talk more about empathy and cognitive behavioral therapy, and particularly as it relates to people in business and also in leadership. Yes. Well, I I wrote the book uh, because stress rates have risen so high in the United States in recent years. I mean, 75% of American workers say that they experience stress on a daily level, physical or emotional. And 50% of American workers say that they wake up every night due to stress. Wow, that's 75% of visits to primary care physicians were due to stress last year. So the stress rates have risen significantly, so I decided to write about it because I think, you know, people realize that it's not, you know, they're not mentally ill, but they're stressed and their lives are not balanced. So what causes stress and how do we diminish it? And I, I decided to take on that, that subject because we're so affected by it right now. Mm-hmm. And there is uh, some stress that's good for us, isn't there? There's, you mm-hmm. know, we, we, we need some stress to, to actually get going and get motivated. But then what you're talking about is the negative stress, which really 
impacts on us negatively. Yes, like right before we started, you know, you had a little, we both had a little anxiety. So it, it actually allows us to be more concentrated, a little, mm -hmm. a little cortisol, a little adrenaline. But what if it gets carried away? What if it becomes too significant? Then it has many negative effects. Mm -hmm. It causes inflammation. It causes sleep disturbances. One of the things that cortisol, the stress hormone, causes is weight gain mm -hmm. that people don't realize because it throws off the blood sugar levels in our body and it creates a, a craving for sugary substances. So it's related to weight gain. It causes flabbiness. So many negative effects and it causes obsessive repetitive thinking. The other thing is it actually kills neurons in the memory center of the brain. How many executives I've seen over the years in their 40s and early 50s who think they're getting Alzheimer's, but really is they're overloaded with stress because their memory isn't as sharp. And when I can get them to calm down and live a more balanced life, their memory comes back. I thought it was menopause. <laughs> I can certainly, that too, that too. Yeah, yeah. I can certainly relate to that, though. Yeah, I yeah. totally relate to that, both on a personal level and also for the people that I've worked with. You, you see them, they do. They get the flabby, put on the weight. What do you think I'm wearing? A big jumper these days. <laughs> you certainly don't look overweight. Yeah. But yes, menop menopausal women will say the same thing. They'll say, am I, am I becoming senile? Am I, am I developing the early stages of Alzheimer's? And again, it the hormonal imbalance has to be explained and that you'll be okay again. Mm -hmm. But if you add stress to that and then you secrete the hormone cortisol again, now we're going down that very negative path and you make it much worse. So there is an antidote? Yes. Okay. Most of the stress we experience is related to perception. Mm -hmm. If you're looking at me right now and you're frowning and I think you're angry with me, then I'm gonna to start to feel stress. If I look at you and I think you look like somebody who's unfamiliar to me, and, and I think, you know, and, and in the background of my mind, maybe unconsciously I have a prejudice against the way you look or your, your skin color or whatever, I'm gonna feel stress. So stress is mostly caused by misperception. Mm -hmm. So if, so if I, you're frowning and I think you're angry with me, but I, then I find out later you suffer from migraines. So you weren't angry with me. Mm -hmm. You were frowning because you had a headache. But it's all these assumptions we make on the early ways that we're conditioned to think. And none of us grows up in a completely objective environment. We all grow up with biases toward ourselves and toward other people. Mm -hmm. I always say to the people that we write a novel about ourselves early in life. We look into the mirrors of the people in our lives in, 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 when we're young. And what they reflect back to us, we think that's who we are. But it's a fictional book most of the time because it, unless you're looking into the eyes of people who are completely objective, you don't get a completely objective view of yourself. It's like looking in a circus mirror. In my career, I've seen people, and it's interesting because many high achievers will keep stressing to achieve more and more no matter how much they achieve and how much money they have. Yes. Because really what they're trying to do is undo those childhood hurts that they had when they had those distortions about who they are. They always think that they have to perform to be better. They're not good enough by who they are. They think they're only good enough by what they do. So we have to unravel that early novel that we created about ourselves and create a nonfiction book. How do we do that? That's where empathy comes in. Mm -hmm. Because when we use empathy, empathy slows down the emotional brain to have thoughtful reflection about what we're seeing and who we're interacting with. And when we're in interactions where we give and receive empathy, we learn more about who we are today. And the most fascinating thing about empathy is when we give and receive empathy, we produce the near neuro, neuro, miracle neurotransmitter oxytocin, 
which is what women produce when they're pregnant. Mm -hmm. What's oxytocin do? It reduces cortisol, it reduces inflammation, it helps us live longer. It reduces the craving for addictive substances. It creates trust, it creates a bond. It makes us open for connection. And in business, when you're negotiating with people, it creates enough trust and bond that we can then work together toward a common goal. So oxytocin is produced when you give and receive empathy. Empathy is the capacity to understand and respond to the unique experiences of another. If we have stress, now I'm negotiating, some of my clients complain, right, because they have to go to China or they have to go to India and they don't like the way the Indians do this, they don't like the way the Chinese do this. I said, do you know anything about Chinese culture? Have you learned anything about the Indian culture? Instead of learning and, and realizing that in the end we're, we're all more alike than we are different, mm -hmm. they're complaining about the difference. Mm -hmm. So what happens? They feel stress. You're Chinese, I'm American. I don't like you because you're Chinese. Or I, and I don't even realize to what depth I don't like you, but I'm producing stress now. And you sense it. That Chinese executive senses it because our nervous systems talk to each other. Mm -hmm. So now you don't really want to negotiate with me. And even if it's good for your company, you might unconsciously undermine this, this contract mm -hmm. because there's a tension between us rather than a connection between us. Again, when we give and receive empathy, we create a neurochemical change that allows for trust, vulnerability, and a bond that makes for good negotiation. Also, it makes for good friendships and good love partners. Mm. And it's interesting that you talk about the frowning because I'm aware that I frown when I'm thinking and concentrating. Yes. And so I'm always, yes. with new people that I meet, I always tell them if I'm frowning, don't worry because I know it yeah. can be mean. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh. And, right. uh, and yeah. people are like, ah, they've upset me when, when all I'm doing is actually concentrating. Yeah. But just think, it's a, you know, it's a small example, but it's relevant because if you grew up with people that frown or are for other reasons because they're always disapproving. Yes. If I have a mother like that or a sister like that or a wife like that and yes. I'm being in this interview and you start to look that way, I said, oh, geez, she doesn't really like what I'm saying. <laughs> exactly. How long is this interview going to be? You know, I'm saying to myself, now you ask me a question and I don't hear the question. Yes. So yes. I'm not concentrating anymore because I think you don't like me. Yeah. yeah. It's a distortion. That's what cognitive behavioral therapy is about. It's the distorted ways we learn to perceive early in life like magnifying, catastrophizing, black and white thinking, minimizing. They're all ways of distorting what we see. Empathy teaches us to see the truth. It slows us down, and that's the key phrase with empathy, slow down, so that we can see beyond the surface into the heart and soul of another person to understand them. And to do that, we have to learn to put our biases aside. Because you, if you look like my ex-wife, who didn't treat me very, very nicely and had an affair with the next door neighbor, I've got to realize you're not my ex-wife. I've got to put that aside. Mm -hmm. I've got to work that through in another time, another place, so that I can say, so, Shirley looks like her. So what? Mm -hmm. You're not her. Yes. You, you teach yourself to not put old faces on new faces. The old faces contribute to the distorted thinking. You're not my ex-wife. Yes. Okay? But if I'm not aware of that, if I lack awareness, I can be sitting down and not even know I am uncomfortable with you. 
And I could see that that would happen if uh, you were doing recruitment interviews, you know. So I'm thinking yes. like for our, for our yes. leaders and our recruiters, here's somebody perfectly suited, but they, they look like somebody's ex-wife, but that's it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Do not pass guard. I once worked in a small medical group and we were hiring a receptionist and uh, uh, the three or four other physicians, they, uh, they interviewed her and then I interviewed her and I said, this is... And she had the long blonde hair and she kept swirling her hair and she was dressed very seductively. And they, they all told me she was great, you know. And the three of them were going through divorces, you know. <laughs> she <laughs> was said, very attractive. And, and so our three out of four, we ended up hiring her. She was horrible. <laughs> but she always looked very pretty. <laughs> so it was amazing to me. These are three MDs, but they really didn't have... They, they didn't realize the state of mind they were in. Mm. We have to realize what our longings are. If you're longing to be loved or you just went through a divorce and now you're interviewing somebody for a job who happens to be very pretty and in your age group, you're going to have trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so take notice of that. <laughs> so you've got to say to yourself, look, I just went through a divorce. I feel rejected. I'm going to interview an attractive woman. I got to focus on her skill sets. <laughs> and I got to have some help. I got to have, yeah, have somebody else interview her too. You know? <laughs> Who I'm going to listen to. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Yeah. Because when we're not aware of our longings, you know, the studies that have been, have been have done in the corporate world that the decision is made in the first five minutes. Yes. Yeah. You know, that you come in and people don't even know it because there's all these things that are going on on an unconscious level. I did a study once many years ago where I had a group of people standing here and then I had a one-way mirror and a group of people over there. And I asked this group of people to tell me what, what those people were about. And they said, oh, we can't tell you what they're about. We don't even know them. We can't hear them. And after about 10 or 15 minutes when I got them warmed up, they said, well, I think she comes from an affluent family. And he looks like a plumber. And they, they were writing books about these people who they've never met. We all do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because we all have our biases. Yes. And we all have our preconceptions. And that's where the distortions come in. Empathy teaches us to objectively discern the facts. And that reduces tension. Because now we know who to get close to, who to remain distant from, who to do business with, who not to do business with, who to hire, who not to hire. Because our old biases are put aside and we've learned more through the giving and receiving of empathy who we are and how to see clearly. Mm -hmm. So just again, let's just reiterate then that definition of, of empathy because it's not feeling for someone, you know, as a, as a lot of us think. Yes. Empathy is the capacity to understand and respond to the unique experiences of another. It's different than sympathy. Sympathy rushes into console. Empathy holds back, slows down, uses the thinking part of the brain to discern the facts. I'll give you an example from one of my... Uh, groups mm -hmm. where a woman came in who was going through a divorce and one of the women and one of the women asked her um, in one in one of these communication groups asked her how come you're here and she said oh I'm going through a divorce before she could even finish her sentence she could you need a hardcore lawyer one in Boston I went through a divorce five years ago and I'm telling you I know the firm I know the guy you and she's going like this and I'm and I'm and one of the guys is smiling and I and I said Fred what and he goes we haven't even heard the last sentence of why she's going through divorce. We're already telling her to go get this hardcore lawyer. And he said, may I ask why you're going through a divorce? And she said, look, I was pregnant when I was a senior in high school. We got married. My husband is a wonderful person. We were never in love. Mm -hmm. I'm 48 years old. He's 48 years old. 
we're getting divorced. We don't need lawyers. We're doing it through a mediator. We're fine. We just want to see if some, at some point in our lives, before we leave this earth, if we can fall in love. And he's always going to be my best friend. Mm -hmm. I don't need a hardcore lawyer. So you see, the first woman's reaction was sympathy. Sympathy is based on identification. I went through this experience. You, might, you must be going through the same experience. Empathy says, I don't know what experience you're going through. I don't have the facts yet. Fred, the other man, wanted the facts. He was asking, what's the story? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you need an attorney like that? Mm -hmm. And of course, her answer was no. So I, I want to take this conversation in two ways. I want to take the empathy back to helping us to reduce the stress and anxiety that we feel. And I also want to look at it for our leaders and our business owners and how using empathy can help them to have better relationships with their people and therefore improve their productivity and profitability. Mm -hmm. hmm. Well, you know, as you and I have discussed off camera, Stephen Covey was asked at one point, what's the most important ingredient in being successful in the corporate world? He said one word, empathy. Why? Because you have to know your customers and you have to know what they need and what they want. Mm -hmm. Harvard Business Review, they, Harvard Business School did a study, a long-term study to figure out um, what, are, what, are the most success, what are the most successful leaders of, of corporations do? What are the qualities they have? EQ, the empathy quotient, was three times more valuable than IQ. Because if I have a high IQ, but I don't know how to relate to you and I don't know how to understand you, we're not going to, everything is done in groups today. We're in an international climate. I mean, you and I are sitting here, we're from different countries, yes. right? That's what, we, that's what we do. We have to find the commonality. And that's why empathy is so important in understanding who you're dealing with. And what I have found with CEOs, CFOs, media personnel, professional athletes, these are people that often, not, not always, but often have those childhood hurts they haven't resolved. So their way of trying to gain love is through achievement. Mm -hmm. And they... And in their personal lives, they really lack. Mm -hmm. And in self-care aspects of their lives, they really lack. That's why I wrote a chapter in the book on self-care. Because people often come to me, they'll be a CFO or a CEO, they're, they're making a lot of money, they're highly educated, they're very articulate, but their personal lives are miserable. Mm -hmm. and, and they have high cholesterol, they're overweight, they drink too much, they travel too much, they're not close to their kids, and they take the kids on a great vacation, and they think that's gonna make up for everything. <laughs> You know. Why don't you appreciate me? <laughs> yeah. And, and the kids don't really know them. Yeah. Because if you slow down in, you, in, you, in your personal life and you try to establish intimate relationships, you can't get too close to anybody if you have things to hide. Mm -hmm. If you're hiding from them from yourself, I have to hide them from you too. Yeah. Even though you're my wife, even though I live with you, I still have to hide. I'm not going to sit still too long to be in that intimate moment because we're vulnerable. People, high achievers, often don't like vulnerable. They see it as weakness, mm -hmm. where I see vulnerability as a strength because it tells us where we need to work, what we need to improve, and it also tells us we're human beings. You and I, before the interview, were a little vulnerable because we wanted to go well, we're a little anxious, we want to get going. That's, that's, that's being human. Yeah. You're at a funeral and you show a few tears. That doesn't mean you're weak. It means you care for the person who's deceased. Balanced people... Not, they don't only achieve in the work world, they have a dimmer switch. They know how to turn it down. So when they enter their home, they know how to play with their kids. They know how to be affable and lovable and, and, and affectionate. When the dimmer switch is always on, it's because you haven't overcome something from your history and you're still trying to prove something. 
I have a CEO who has more money than anybody I ever have met, okay? He went to Florida, he's retired, and his wife, his third wife, kicked him under the table because every time they go to dinner, he's always telling people about he used to be a CEO, you know? You know what he did? He came back here. He's now working for the company that he sold, and he calls that, that CEO his boss. Wow. And I said, oh, you're working up the ladder at 72 years old. <laughs> And, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't really fully understand that the people in that company, they don't understand what in the world he's there for. You know what he's there for? Because he's, we all play to our strengths. He knows how to achieve. He doesn't know how to love. Mm -hmm. And I see these people in their 50s and 60s, and what it all comes down to is they finally realize this tremendous intensity to achieve was really about finding love and respect. You know, that's what I coined the term performance addiction. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the belief that perfecting appearance and achieving status will bring love and respect. It doesn't. It's a myth. These individuals try to perfect their way into happiness. And perfection, when you have that perfectionistic drive, you're always comparing and contrasting yourself to other people. You do the same to your wife and to your kids or to your husband. Mm -hmm. And it drives everybody crazy, including yourself because you can't relax, because you don't have that dimmer switch. You can't slow down. I try to teach people in my group experiences especially, you can slow down. And in this book, I really wrote it as a workbook so that there's a number of exercises in the book that I ask you to share with other people. Because we can't determine who we are alone. We're all too subjective. And if you don't know who you are, authentically who you are, you can't go into the world and be resilient and be authentic there either. And again, our nervous systems talk to each other. So if I'm sort of projecting an image, you're going to sense it. And you're not going to feel as comfortable with me. And it affects business. Mm -hmm. It affects the hiring of people. It, accepts your, it affects your whole environment. You walk down the hall, if you're too busy to say hi to the person cleaning your office, there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can't slow down. You don't know his name. No. My dad, when I was, I got appointed a chief psychologist at the hospital once, and my, my mother and father came in, and I was a young guy, I'm so excited, they're going to see my sign. And they came in, and there was a man cleaning up at the, cleaning the floors at the bottom. You know, it was Friday night, the lights were kind of dim. And my dad came in, and he saw the sign, and he goes, I said, Dad, what are you thinking? He goes, um, do you know his name? I said, uh, no. You don't know his name? I said, no. He said, you clean the floors every night? Yeah. You're here pretty much around this time? Yeah. Go down and ask him what his name is. Ooh, ask him what his wife's name is and find out the name of his children. Then I'll look at your office. I said, okay. And I got it. Yeah. Calm down. Be humble. You're not so important. <laughs> <laughs> Very wise words. Another human being at the end of the hall, and we became friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it made me feel better. You see... Giving, giving, people who give are 10 times more healthy than people who just take. You know, the helper's high, we talk about that. That produces oxytocin. Mm -hmm. So my going down and my dad sort of teaching me, talk to the woman who cooks your food, talk to the person who gets your coffee. You know, I, I started to do that. And then, you know, when I'd go down to the cafeteria at lunchtime and the, this woman was from England and she, we would kid about her accent, my ac accent, Massachusetts accent, you know. We became friends. That little table that you saw, there's a little kid's table out in, in, our, in our family room. Her husband made that for me. Wow. You know, and so we became friends. And what he was teaching me is you have all these opportunities in your workday to feel good. Yeah. 
Then I go back to work and I go in a staff meeting and we're, we're devising certain strategies to improve our performance. And I was better at it. Mm -hmm. Instead of putting my head down and I don't say hi to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. And that was a lesson that my mother taught me early on. She always said, be sociable. You know, as soon as you walk in and say good morning to people and you always have to be sociable. And one of the things when I was going to uh, uni and I had a second job as well when I was saving up to travel, when I worked behind the bar and I learned pretty quick smart, you always looked after the guys who would bring your kegs of beer in and change them for you. Yes, yeah, you just, yes. Yeah, yes. it was, um, th that's the way that you got on. But, but it wasn't a manipulative thing. It was from a genuine interest. Yes. And you would yes. see the other people who thought, oh, no, I, yes. I'm, I'm the bar person here. Yeah. You know, I'll just pour it. You're the yeah. whatever. Right. And uh, it, I tell you, whenever any um, issues happened, they didn't get the help. Yes. Yeah. Because you had an authentic connection. Yeah. And you, you weren't just doing it to be manipulative, you, you were doing it to have a relationship. Mm -hmm. Yes. Rather, yeah. than, rather than ignoring the person because they're below you. Yeah. Once you have, and you're in business and you're leading a business, and certainly small business owners really see this. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you take that elitist stance, you're gonna be resented. Yeah. And believe me, people will undermine you <laughs> unconsciously even when their bonus depends on you. They'll stu still do something that'll mess it up because they don't wanna please you. Yes. Like, yeah. a, like, a like a child is being mistreated by a parent. Yeah. And they say, you know, I'll buy you that car if you do X, Y, Z. And you, you don't want to do it because I don't like you. You yeah. don't treat me respectfully. It's the same theory. Yeah. I, I remember one time we, we got this new director in a uh, government organization I worked in. And we all had loyalty to our previous director. She was fabulous. She was interested in us. This new one came in and one of the ladies had to move some chairs from one floor to another and she was stumbling with them coming out of the lift. And uh, I'll call the, the director Mary. And she said, Mary, can you help with this? And the, Mary looked at her and she said, what? Oh, I'm a director. I, could, <laughs> I couldn't be helping you with that. Yeah. Well, that story went right yes. round, and, yes. and yeah. that was the end of Mary. Yeah. yeah. You reminded me, I did a consultation with a, with a CFO the other night who was kind of bragging about his wealth and so forth. And then he said, and then at the end, I asked him, I said, do you want to bill this to your insurance or are you going to self pay? Oh, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care what you bill me. So just kidding. I said, so he was walking out. And I said, well, you didn't, you didn't make a decision. You wanted me to use your insurance or you, you want me to bill you? I tell you, I don't care what you bill me. I said, okay, it's $500. <laughs> Good. I said five hundred. I said you said you didn't care. Yeah. You know, it's. I was trying to move him from this to you know come down to earth. Come yeah. on. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Money's not important. You know, like well, you are getting provided a service here. Yes. You know. Yeah. 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 Maybe you should care. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe you should care. Yes. Yes. All right. Arthur, I, I want to continue this conversation. I think it's just absolutely fantastic. And we also want to be talking more about using the empathy then to be curing the stress. And, mm -hmm. and let's get into empathy because I know you have a lot of techniques. And then maybe we can look at some of the assessment tools. I know when you start, I've read your book and gone mm -hmm. through them and as I you know, almost get halfway through and go, no. So, so maybe we'll have a look at that. And okay. um, yeah. Do you want to get the media to notice you? your brand, or your business? Jess Tonfeld says it's easier than you think. He should know. He set a Guinness record for being interviewed the most times in 24 hours. 
112 different radio stations. He can also show you how to get featured on major TV networks and national newspapers. In fact, he's giving away many of his top secrets to listeners of this show. Just go to MediaCheatSheet.com. That's MediaCheatSheet.com to get the free info on creating the media attention you deserve. Shirley Dalton's mission is to inspire, educate, and support you to be, do, have, and feel what you want. That's why she recommends using Mind Movies. Create your very own digital vision board. Take it with you on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. See it, hear it, feel it, have it. Go to ShirleyDalton.com slash go slash Mind Movies. Again, that's ShirleyDalton.com forward slash go forward slash Mind Movies. Get started today. Sign up right now to create your idea. Deal Business Lifestyle. You are listening to Reclaim Your Freedom with Shirley Dalton. If you have a question or comment about the program, please go to ShirleyDalton.com and send a voicemail or use the contact form. That's ShirleyDalton.com. Now, back to Reclaim Your Freedom. And now we're doing part two of our interview with Dr. Arthur Sierra McCauley. Welcome again. Thank you. Thank you, Shirley. You got that last name right. That's a long one. Uh, yes, <laughs> it is a long one. But, but I always ask people, how do you pronounce your name? Because you know how you pronounce it. So if you yes. tell me and then I get it, rather than me, you know, it's, um, and it's important, isn't it? And we're, and we're talking about empathy today too. So Yes, it matters. And, and uh I think now that we're, we're such an international world, you know, we, we, we interact with so many different people from different cultures, it, it really means a lot mm. to people when you learn how to pronounce their names. Yes, yeah. and, and I know since we've been traveling, you know, ours is Dalton, D-A-L-T-O-N, and it's mm-hmm. like tall and ball and call, and, uh, and I spell it for people, and then they go, oh, Dalton. <laughs> and I go, oh, yeah, okay, you know. Whatever. So, yeah. Just, See, like you say Arthur, here they say Arthur. A R T H A. There's no R. <laughs> Boston. Okay. Bia. Bob. You know. Yeah. 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 Okay. Fascinating stuff. And today's interview, as I mentioned, is part two. And because it's so fascinating, I didn't want to not take advantage of our opportunity to spend some more time with you. It's just fascinating. So we were talking before about empathy and we're talking about cognitive behavior therapy you're a clinical psychologist you work with executives and high achievers you've written books on performance addiction and we'll do a little quiz on that a little mm-hmm. bit later on so you can find out you probably already know but i'll tell you when you go through this assessment <laughs> you'll stop <laughs> tick 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 but what we can do about it and so your book the stress solution how to use empathy and cognitive behavior therapy to reduce anxiety and to develop resilience. So, you know, we understand from your statistics that a lot of us are feeling stress and it's the negative stress. Mm -hmm. And you've got the antidote of things that we can do using empathy and cognitive behavior therapy. So for some of our listeners who may have heard the term cognitive behavior therapy, and then we've mentioned a couple of types of distortions in the way that we think, you know, mm-hmm. there was catastrophizing black and white. Could we just explain, give a few examples of some of that so people can understand and go, oh, okay, now I understand what I'm doing when I say that or I do yes. that. Uh, well, cognitive behavioral therapy basically focuses on distorted thinking. So. Mm-hmm. 
And as I said, you know, in the first segment, we, we all grow up with some distortions about ourselves and other people. So first of all, it's accepting that. Mm -hmm. And secondly, it's then learning and how to unlearn some of the things we learned that are inaccurate. I thank my publisher in the book because they allowed me to write a chapter on prejudice, which I know you know about, which mm -hmm. is very important to me in my work. So one of the examples, and this was from a, a CFO who is a very good man, but uh, we were meeting in my office, and you know from the home, I have an office over the garage, and the window is open in the summer, and there were dogs barking outside, and we were talking about athletes, and he, he had mentioned that he had met Jesse Owens in his life and so forth. He's a, is a bit older man, and he said, oh, you know, um, dogs don't like black people. And I said, really? They don't like black people? He said, yeah, it's something about the smell. I said, oh. I said, um, how did you come to learn that, that dogs don't like black people? He said, well, you know, we lived in a neighborhood and it was one black family, they lived on the corner. And my mother always said, don't take the dogs down there, they don't like black people. And I said, oh, okay. I said, um, by the way, did you ever take the dogs down there? And he said, no. And I said, have you ever been in the presence of a black person with a dog? He said, no. He said, now you're making me feel silly. <laughs> I said, I'm not trying to make you feel silly, and I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but part of your reason for being here is to learn how to perceive accurately and how to unlearn some of the biased thinking that we came to learn early in life. So you learned, it's a great example, you learned that black people, don't, dogs don't take to black people. I said, I have an uncle who's black, and we call him the dog whisperer. <laughs> Our dogs love him. His dogs love him. I've never noticed any smell. And I'm just, I'm just telling you that. And in that chapter, I give quotes from about 12 people, all college educated. Uh, one fellow said, oh, you know, we can't have a woman as a president. You know how women are. I said, no, how, how are women? Well, you know, they'd be very emotional, but she'll never be able to think through things and strategize. I said, oh. Ouch. You know, men don't have the empathy gene. Oh, oh really? How, they don't have the empathy gene. Okay. Another one was, uh, geez, I like, you know, I really like the neighborhood, but I don't like my kids playing with Christians. Oh, okay. Another one was, interestingly, this was in the same day, I really like where we live. It was a, a couple that moved from California, but I, I don't like them, you know, I don't like them playing with all the Jewish kids down the street, you know, oh. and on and on and on, okay? So these are distortions. They're assumptions that we've made early in life about certain kinds of people and about ourselves. In my career, I've seen so many people who think they're not athletic, they're not intelligent, they're not attractive, and it's based on myth. It's based on the feedback, those mirrors that they looked into early in life that were distorted. So cognitive behavioral therapy is trying to get people to look at the distortions first, and empathy slows us down. It slows down the emotional brain to think through what is accurate and truthful. And the two together cause a neurochemical change. Because as we talked in part one, when we give and receive empathy, we produce oxytocin, mm -hmm. that amazing neurochemical that makes us feel safer. We, it creates a bond. It makes us feel trust. And it's absolutely crucial for friendship, for love, but also for negotiating. When you, when you have a relationship, I, I love the story by Nancy Reagan when she was talking about the, the presidential politics in this country. And she was, before she died, interviewed by Katie Couric. And... She's, Katie asked her, what, what's the difference between politics today and, and in your day, in your husband's day? She said, in my husband's day, Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan would argue till 2 o'clock in the morning, and Tip O'Neill was a devout Democrat, and my husband was a devout Republican. She said, but they were best friends. Mm -hmm. 
And now what I took from that is they were authentic friends. Mm -hmm. they, they believed in what they believed in the service of the country, not because of some particular ego issue. Mm -hmm. So they were trying to do what they could and each other understood each other. They didn't agree. Mm -hmm. When President Reagan was shot, she said Tip O'Neill was the first one at his bedside in intensive care. He held his hand and said, Mr. President, I love you. Mm. We don't have that today. Mm -mm. You're on one side or the other side. It's us or them. Empathy brings the commonality of the two. We are all more alike than we are different. I don't care where you're from. We all have the same needs. Mm -hmm. We want to be loved. We want to be respected. We want to be connected. And what people have to understand in the corporate world especially, achievement alone will not bring you love. Mm -hmm. you're, you're as good as yesterday's home run, as one of my professional athletes told me. You come into the stadium and you hit a home run last night and everybody clapped, but what happens when you're there today? What are you going to do today? If you strike out three times today, you're no good. You know, it, so these kind, of a, these kind of external things are only fleeting when we get those awards. You can't solve an internal problem with an external solution. How do you solve that internal problem, that internal angst, that internal stress? By learning how to connect, by learning how to use empathy, by learning how to understand other people beyond the surface. You know, we, you know in the book there's a chapter on empathic listening, mm -hmm. which is, I always say, holy listening. You know, listening another person's soul into a position of disclosure and discovery. Mm -hmm. that, that's a term that came from Douglas Steer. He was a theologian. But I just love that definition of holy listening. Mm -hmm. Because when you truly listen, you know, people have said to me throughout my career, oh, he won't talk to you, she won't talk to you. You know what happens when you're genuinely listening to a person? They talk to you. They talk. Human beings want to talk. Yes. You know that. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So we've talked a little bit about, well, we've talked a lot about empathy. And we're introducing now the empathic or the holy listening, and I love that. So how do people learn to listen? Well, for, first of all, you need to slow down. <coughs> we all need to slow down. We live in a very fast-paced world, but you have to, have to actually hear yourself talking. Mm -hmm. Slow down. The faster you talk, the quicker you react, the more you react emotionally, the more you're reacting from a stress position rather than a calm, thoughtful position. Empathy slows us down so that we can think reflectively. And one of the most important things when we slow down and we try to connect with other people, ask open-ended questions. Mm -hmm. Open-ended questions means I'm truly curious. Mm -hmm. Okay. And remember, a lot of questions are statements. We're not truly curious. Like I say, gee, how did you think that last interview went, Shirley? And I, and I say it like that. Well, that means I don't think it went very well. Okay? <laughs> I, I listened to your interview. How do you think it went? You know? So a, a lot of times we don't have the courage to make a statement when we're really asking a, a, we ask a question instead. But what about when you ask a truly open-ended question? Gee, how did, how did you get into this business? Mm -hmm. How did you decide to do radio? How did you decide to do... I don't know the answer to that. I'm truly, truly curious. Mm -hmm. Maybe you'll tell me later. Yes. Um, but it's different than closed-end questions. It's like a mother when a teenage daughter goes out on a date, you know, and the mother looked at the kid and had long hair, and then she comes home and she goes, oh, did you really think he was cute? Well, what does that mean? It means I didn't think he was cute, <laughs> right? And the girl says, I'm going up to my room, Mom. She doesn't want to talk to you. What if you said... How, did, how was your evening? That's an open-ended question that's truly curious about information. Mm -hmm. Give me the information. And then be quiet long enough to hear the answer. Sure, yeah. sure. Instead of assuming, for instance, you're in a group, you're working for me, 
and someone else tells me that the meeting didn't go very well and, and you spoke in a way that, that really didn't support our product. Instead of me calling you in and say, Shirley, I understand when you met with H&R, blah, 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 blah. No, Shirley, I, I know that was a long meeting. How did it go? Well. <laughs> I want to get information from you. I want to hear your side. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If I start off criticizing you, I haven't even heard you. Yes. And if, I, and if I'm not hearing you, you're going to be resistant to me. So now we're in conflict. So what are you going to tell me? You're not going to really tell me what you think, or you're going to get angry and defensive. And I can't really tease out what happened in that meeting and how to correct it if, in fact, something could have been improved. Mm, mm, mm. I hope you're taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> this will help you. All right. And we, we talked a little bit about some of those distortions too. We talked about the catastrophizing and the black and white thinking. So uh, can we just give a couple of examples of that so that people understand how their thinking is um, categorized, for example? What is catastrophic thinking? What is black and white thinking? Well, black and white thinking rules out the gray. It, you're either right or wrong, it's us and them. And as I said earlier, you know, we have too much of that in this country right now. Democrats vote Democrat, Republicans vote Republican. We don't meet in the middle. But it's like that in any negotiation. Or when people marry and they're from two different cultures. Mm -hmm. And we see that a lot now. That I try to make you a clone of me and you try to make me a clone of you. And guess what? That doesn't work. So we have to understand each other's perspectives and then come to a compromise of what's best for both of us. But, and that... And that black and white thinking doesn't allow for the gray. Mm -hmm. And people try to pretend sometimes to be very confident by being black and white. I know exactly what to do. I remember once I was, we had a meeting with one of the insurance companies in Boston and the person I was working with, we walked in and he said, well, we're really looking for a hospital that has an eating disorder in, uh, unit. And, and my colleague said, well, we have an eating disorders unit. We, we don't have an eating. And I'm looking at him and I'm saying, and uh, I'm, I'm, we're driving home and I was working for him. And I said, uh, by the way, Ron, we don't have an eating disorder. It was, we do by Monday. <laughs> <laughs> and what happened? They started referring patients. We didn't have the expertise. We didn't have the people that really understood eating disorders. Our budget for that unit went like this. Because he was displaying a, a confidence, a false confidence, what I call pathological certainty. And I think a lot of people use pathological certainty to seem confident rather than sometimes saying, you know, we don't have that right now. We could develop it if you and we could strategize and develop a plan. And over a three month period, we could probably have that in place. Could we discuss that? Could we have further meetings about it? Mm -hmm. That's being authentic and honest. Selling something you don't have or lying about projections, which you see you know, some of my clients who work for some of the pharmaceutical industries, uh, companies, you know, they, they have to go to investors and project when certain drugs are going to come to market and investors are looking at this and they may, you know, stocks may go up. And, but uh, is, it, is it really true that that's going to happen when they're saying that, you know, it's going to be developed in the eight, next 18 months or whatever product it is? Can you exist and tell the truth? Can you be ethical? Can you be honest? People respect you when you do that. Mm -hmm. When you burn people initially, they remember you. Oh, yes. They remember you. It hurts. So what's the point of lying? Yeah. What's the point of saying you can do something you know you can't? Mm. Mm. Yes. Okay. And uh, I just want to tick off on that catastrophic thinking. So what, what's your definition of that or what's an example of that? Well, it's, it, 
it, for instance, I have a client who's flying to Europe this week, and she hates flying, and she's obsessed with the plane going down, and and it's a, it's a new thing for her because she was in a car accident. But my my point is that she's catastrophizing this flight, mm -hmm. and she's done it many times, and she's been fine, and she's most likely to be fine again. But all the images are are creating insomnia because she hasn't really worked out the fact that she got in a car accident, even though she's been driving for 52 years and she's been in one car accident, which she was not hurt in, incidentally. Um, it was a fender bender. So c catastrophic thinking, I mean, that's a particular situation where someone has developed it in that instance because of an accident, but some people have it all the time because they grew up hearing their parents catastrophize all the time. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'll probably be out of work, or I'll probably get laid off, or your father probably doesn't, he's probably not going to bring home much money this week, or, you know, uh, well, you're probably not, your sister's probably not going to do that well in that high school. And if you hear a lot of negativity, you project it out into the world because you think that's what the world is. Mm. So you catastrophize, you accentuate, rather than bringing it down to what are the facts. Mm -hmm. Empathy's asking what are the facts. You've mm -hmm. taken 13 trips to England. How many times did the plane go down? <laughs> um, well, another answer is, well, you're making me sound silly. I'm not trying to, but, you know, what are the facts? Yes. Slow it down and don't let your mind get carried away because once you produce enough cortisol, enough of that stress hormone, it just goes and goes, and then it has a life of its own. And then it's hard to peel it back. And I see that with some of the leaders and the entrepreneurs that we work with and it's it's almost like they um become a gorilla you know and when the gorilla's out there's no taming the gorilla you know there's there's just this uh picture that they keep constantly seeing and talking about um and and i love what you're saying there is what's the evidence you know where where is the evidence that that shows that either the plane's going to come down or the business is going to go broke or, you know, those sorts of things. Yes. Yeah. And when you see that happening in a meeting, when you see people starting to respond quickly, someone in that meeting should slow it down. Say, you know, let's slow down. I always say to people, I'm not that bright. I can't, I can't understand you when you talk that quickly. You know, can you slow it down so I can get it? So I'm trying not, not to insult them, but I'm trying to say, truly, I can't digest it. You're, you're talking too fast. Mm -hmm. And when we talk fast and it's very reactive, and you see that a lot in business meetings. People are not listening to each other. Mm, mm, mm. So when we're not listening, what are we going to accomplish? Mm. Slow down. Someone has to raise the flag. Say, when the tempo picks up this quick, the likelihood that we're going to be constructive goes down significantly. The I'm not saying we have to be passive and, and lazy, but we have to be talking in a way that we can take in what's being said. And if we're reacting quickly, we're being offended by each other. Mm -hmm. That's what quick reactors do. I, I don't like you saying that about me, so I'm going to react quickly. Rather than saying, slowing down, and let me find out what you really meant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's find out, Shirley, did you really mean to insult Bob? Because, Bob, you're acting like you're insulted. Let, let, well, I think she thinks that, wait a minute, wait a minute. What did you mean? And please don't interrupt. Let's find out what she meant. <laughs> yes. Okay. When you commented on quality assurance, because we know Bob's the director of, of QA, did you mean that you don't respect his people? Did you mean that? Because obviously Bob's take. Hold on, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, Bob. <laughs> and then you develop a climate where people listen. 
and people understand and it becomes far more productive and people worry less. Why? Because we just made a brain change. When I say, Bob, slow down, I'm going to make sure we understand what she's saying. I, I don't, you could be right, you could be wrong. Let's find, let's find out. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm reducing the cortisol, the stress release in his body, and I'm trying to reduce it in yours too because you're picking up his nervous system. Saying, okay, we got time, okay? Let's yeah. make this constructive. Yeah. I love it. Wow, such great advice there. And I can imagine you know, people in their meetings and, and if, if there's one thing to take away from our conversation today is that empathy, is that slowing down and checking. Yes. Che checking yes. it out. You know, did yes. you really mean that? Is that what you meant? Because oftentimes it's not. You know, we we yes. blurt things out. They come out the wrong way. And uh and then we're off to the races because of all of my cognitive thinking and, yes. and my misperception, as you said before. Yes. Hmm. And we always want to focus on that. We have to reduce stress. Stress is very damaging to our physiology, to our brains, to our, toward our immune system. We have to calm ourselves and we have to learn to slow down because so many people in the business world live with this level of stress and don't realize what it's doing to them. Yes. It is hurting you significantly. Yes. And when people realize that, that every thought you have has a neurochemical correlate, you know, and particularly the way you talk to yourself. You know, there's a chapter in the book on self-talk, mm -hmm. which is critical yeah. because people make a comment in a meeting and they say, oh, I really, I can't believe I was in that meeting. It was so important. I think I sounded stupid. And I say, you know, did you ask any, any of your colleagues in that room you trust? Yeah, yeah, well, there's this one woman. We've been working together for 13 years. Could you ask her tomorrow to give you an honest assessment of how you sounded in that meeting, and then we can talk about it? And ask her to be completely honest. Mm -hmm. Nine times out of ten, that person says, you know, I didn't really understand the last point you made. It wasn't all that clear, but it certainly wasn't stupid. Yeah. And I never had the thought that you weren't intelligent. It reminds me, I had a, a colleague of mine ring up one day and she was in a flap and she said, I need to apologise, I've been stewing on this all night, I couldn't sleep, I, had, I, you know, I really want to tell you I'm so sorry. I said, okay, well, yeah, what are you sorry about? Oh, she said, I made this comment and, you know, and that's not like me and I didn't mean to. Honestly, I didn't hear the comment. Yeah. And she'd lost sleep right. and then she really didn't believe me when I said I really didn't hear that comment. Yeah. Don't, don't worry about it. Yeah. 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 And that's a good example, too, of rewriting your story. You know, that novel that we grow up with and turning it into a nonfiction book. Because a lot of times when we grew up believing certain things about ourselves, even though you get feedback from an objective, rational person to the contrary of what you thought all your life, you, we hold on to our story. I'm, I'm hold right. On. I, know what, I know who I was. <laughs> no, when you decided that at five years old, you didn't really know. <laughs> I know, and I'm almost got, not game to look at our cameraman here, my husband, because I know later on he's just going to be going, mm, <laughs> yes, what Dr. Arthur said, yeah, be, yeah, because I will do that. I'm my own worst yeah. critic, and yeah. I know that a lot of our audience is like that. Yeah. With the time left, let's get into this performance addiction assessment okay. and just go through a couple of them. So um, 
so that it you can understand if you do suffer from the and I say suffer mm -hmm. from performance addiction because maybe it's something that you can let go of. Yes. Yeah. So performance addiction is the belief that perfecting appearance and achieving status will secure love and respect. Mm -hmm. It's an irrational belief system that we learn early in our families and it's reinforced by cultural expectations. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the book I have a performance addiction quiz and you wanted me to read a few of them. Just, just a couple, the you won't be able to, <laughs> we won't be able to stand all of them. <laughs> so let's see. Okay, here's, here's a few. Did you seldom feel listened to as a child? Did you worry that if you didn't please your parents, you would lose their love? Did you question whether your parents truly loved each other? Do you often feel guilty? Do you seldom have fun with parents outside of achievement-oriented situations? Were your parents quite concerned with your physical appearance? Were one or both of your parents critical people in general? Do you have memories of specific childhood hurts that have never left you? <laughs> Were you easily humiliated as a young person? Were you considered to be a very sensitive child? Do you believe your past mistakes make you unlovable today? Do you want unconditional acceptance with no criticism? <laughs> Do you feel irritated when people close to you are not being capable and efficient? Do you always have a to-do list in your mind or in your pocket? Have you considered or have you had already had cosmetic surgery? Are you chronically dissatisfied with the way people respond to you? Okay, stop. Okay. <laughs> You've had enough? <laughs> tick, 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 tick. <laughs> And, and so I'm guessing then that for, uh, and I'll put my hand up, those of us with performance addiction, um, it can, because I can, I can totally relate to a lot of that, um, then the cognitive behaviour therapy and the empathy and slowing yes, it down yes. and, then, and then changing those, those voices, those criticisms, those, those inner critics that we have. Right. We have to defeat the psychology of perfection. Mm -hmm. We cannot perfect our way into happiness. It's not possible. Mm -hmm. You can spend your life believing it, but if you spend your life believing it, I guarantee you will live every day with stress. And the stress over time, it has a cumulative effect. It will really affect your health, your well-being, and your overall mental status, mm -hmm. unquestionably. Mm -hmm. So for those people, um, Arthur, who are interested to find out more, where can they get your book and where, where can they you know, find out more about you and what you do and how they could get in touch with you? Well, my website is balanceyoursuccess.com. Mm -hmm. You can send me an email through the website or the book can be ordered there or on Amazon or Barnes & Noble mm -hmm. online. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, and of course we've been talking about your latest book, The, the Stress Solution, but you've written many other books, including Performance Addiction and um, what was the one about empathy? The Power of Empathy. The Power of yeah. Empathy, yes. So, so is there any last comments that you would like to make in relation to what we've been talking about today? Probably the most important thing is that whatever you've learned early in life about yourself or about others that's not true can be unlearned. Anything that's learned can be unlearned. It's not genetic. We learned it and we can unlearn it. It takes time and diligence. This book is a workbook to give you the opportunity to do that. Yes, and, and that's right. As you say, it's a workbook because uh, that's only one assessment in there. You've got the yes, empathy. Yes, there's several. Yes, yes. So um, we, I won't get you to read them out, but uh, there is a questionnaire to find out how, how much empathy you have. Yes, there's an empathy questionnaire. There's yes. a stress questionnaire. Yes. There's a performance addiction questionnaire, yes. which I know you like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do. 
And, and I have to say, I'm working on it. You know, I found I found this particularly interesting. You know, it's it's what I love to do anyway, and uh, and also for our audience. You know, because what we want to do is to help them to reclaim their freedom and create mm -hmm. their ideal business lifestyle. And so, it's not always about how to increase the sales performance of your sales team. You know, it really is about who you are and how you interact, not only with your team but also with yourself. And so. Yes. I really yes. want to thank you for today. We've been so fortunate um, and it's just beautiful. I love where you live. It would be hard to be stressed out here. It's just gorgeous. <laughs> well, yeah. thank you very much. I appreciate it very much, Shirley. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining Shirley Dalton and her amazing guest this week on Reclaim Your Freedom. Please tune in again next week for an inspirational and educational edition. Until then, be sure to implement what you've learned today to create your ideal business lifestyle. Have a great week, and we'll see you back here for the next show.